Good morning. Today we continue our series, Way of Wisdom, and we are now at part 27, all right? So um, we are almost finished with this series. I don't know if that is good news in your mind or bad news, like, oh, it's over, or like, whoo, it's finally over, but we have been in this series for a long time, and we are almost finished. There are two sermons left. We are planning on um, the last two sermons being, so there's this week, we're going to learn Proverbs chapter 30, and next week the plan is to learn Proverbs chapter 31. Um, and so to remind you, those are the last two chapters of Proverbs, by the way. 30 and 31 is where it ends. <clears throat> so if you have uh, been with us, you may know this, but if you haven't, I'll just remind you of the outline. Um, Proverbs, the first nine chapters are written more like a normal book of the Bible, where there is a sustained thought for many, many sentences in a row. And you can read a chapter of it like Proverbs chapter 2. And at the end, you can kind of summarize, this is what Proverbs chapter 2 is about, right? And you can do it maybe in one sentence. Then when you get to chapters 10 through 29, and 29 is not the last chapter, so I'm calling it the middle of Proverbs, um, it's not like that. The middle of Proverbs is a list of sentences, wise sayings, that for the most part are about one sentence long. Not all of them are, but most of them are one sentence long, and usually they have nothing to do with the sentence that comes before them or the sentence that comes after them. It's a bunch of wise sayings in a list, and it goes on for pages and pages. And then you get to chapters 30 and 31, the final two chapters, and they are more like chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs, or so I thought. So I started studying Proverbs chapter 30, and Proverbs chapter 30 is called The Words of Agur. And as I studied it, I realized this chapter is much more difficult to preach on than I originally thought. In fact, I... Um, read a commentary about it, and there is this, so the guy who wrote the commentary, keep in mind, this is a guy who wrote a book on the book of Proverbs. He is an Old Testament scholar, and he said, and I quote, the words of Agar passage is easily the most difficult section of the book of Proverbs to translate and understand. Now, I don't need to translate it, so that's great, but as far as understanding it goes, this Old Testament scholar says this chapter is easily the most difficult one in the entire book of Proverbs. And so, I had a hard time with it, but here we go. Proverbs chapter 30. I'm going to read to you the entire chapter, and then after that I'm going to report back to you what I researched and what I've learned, and hopefully in a way that will be helpful to you. Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 1. The words of Agur, son of Jacob, the oracle, the man's oration to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukal. I am more stupid than any other man, and I lack man's ability to understand. I have not gained wisdom, and I have no knowledge of the Holy One. Who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? Who has bound up the waters in, his, in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name, and what is the name of his Son, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Don't add to his words, or he will rebuke you, and you will be proved a liar. Two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. Don't slander a servant to his master, or he will curse you, and you will become guilty. There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filth. There is a generation how haughty its eyes and pretentious its looks. There is a generation whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, devouring the oppressed from the land and the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters. Give, give. 
Three things are never satisfied. Four, never say enough. Sheol, a childless womb. Earth, which is never satisfied with water. And fire, which never says enough. As for the eye that ridicules a father and despises a mother, sorry, despises obedience to a mother, may ravens of the valley pluck it out and young vultures eat it. Three things are beyond me. Four, I can't understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a snake on a rock, the way of a ship at sea, the way of a man with a young woman. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I've done nothing wrong. The earth trembles under three things. It cannot bear up under four. A servant when he becomes king, a fool when he is stuffed with food, an unloved woman when she marries, and a servant girl when she ousts her queen. Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. The ants are not strong people, yet they store up their food in the summer. Hyraxes are not a mighty people, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. Locusts have no king, yet all of them march in ranks. A lizard can be caught in your hands, yet it lives in king's palaces. Three things are stately in their stride. Even four are stately in their walk. A lion, which is the mightiest among beasts and doesn't retreat before anything. A strutting rooster, a goat, and a king at the end of his army. If you have been foolish by exalting yourself, or if you've been scheming, put your hand over your mouth. For the churning of milk produces butter, and twisting a nose draws blood, and stirring up anger produces strife. What? <laughs> what are we supposed to do with that? And so initially, I tried to read this chapter like I did the, the chapters early on in Proverbs and try to figure out what's the theme, what's the main point. Maybe this was ill-advised, but that's what I was trying to do. I was trying to read this passage, and I was trying to ask myself, what is this about? If I were going to summarize it in a sentence or two, like, what is it? What's the main point? And as I've studied it, I've come to this conclusion. I don't think there is one. I don't think there is one main point to the words of Agur. And it took me a little while to realize this, but as I was studying it, that's what I, th I think. I'm just going to give you my opinion. I think there are 16 different topics in this chapter, and there's no way to cover them all in one Sunday. This chapter talks about honoring your parents. This chapter talks about knowing God. This chapter talks about observations from the animal world. I think there are 16 different topics, and there's no way we can cover them all. They are, I, I think this chapter turned out to be quite a bit more like chapters 10 through 29 than I realized. He talks about a lot of different things. Additionally, as I researched this, I found out that um, in the Greek manuscripts, like the ancient Greek manuscripts of Proverbs, there's this, this chapter is broken into two sections. So Proverbs was originally written in Hebrew, but then it was translated into Greek, okay? Long, long time ago, translated into ancient Greek. And in the ancient Greek manuscripts of Proverbs, verses 1 through 14 are in a different section than verses 15 through 33. Now, the reason I bring that up is because it perhaps shows that the Hebrew people didn't think of this as all one unit, that there was verses 1 through 14 was one section, and verses 15 through 33 is another section, so that if you read verses 15 through 33 and you're going, hmm, what does this have to do with the first half of the chapter? The answer might be nothing. It might be that they're two different sections. It might be that 15 through 33 aren't the words of Agar. I don't know for sure. But it seems like they're two different sections. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is this. I'm going to treat it that way as two different sections. Um, I'm going to briefly explain to you a little bit about the back half of this, like the back half of the chapter, verses 15 through 33. And then I'm going to spend most of my time in this sermon explaining verses 1 through 14, because I think that's all one unit, and so that's what I'm going to focus on. But before I do, let me just tell you a little bit about the second half of the chapter. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 15 through 33, is mostly made up of numerical proverbs. You probably noticed the pattern, right? 
When I say numerical, I mean there were, there were numbered lists. And the numbered lists were lists listed over and over again. The numbered lists were lists of four, although most of them faked you out and looked like it's a list of three. Did you notice that? It would say, there, there are three, no, there are four. There are three, there are four. So which is it? Is it three or four? It's four. Yeah, I counted them. It's four. Okay, so it, that must have been a Hebrew way of saying there's three things and then there's one more thing, the fourth thing. So there are several lists of four. In fact, there's five. <laughs> there's five lists of four. There's five lists of three that are really four. Okay, there's five lists of four. And most of them are observations about the world. And so I'll just, I'm going to just show you one of them. Uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 24. This is one of the lists. And it says, Four things on earth are small, yet they are extremely wise. And then after this verse, there are four things listed. Ants, hyraxes, locusts, and lizards. Okay, those are the four things. These four things are small, yet extremely wise. And if you read the way that they are described, basically, I think the point here is there are these creatures that are small, and in the sense they're small in the sense that they are not powerful. They are not mighty, right? An ant is small, and, and, and a hyrax is small, and a locust is small, and a lizard is small. And yet, in all of the descriptions of these animals, the, the author says a, like, kind of says that they're small, but they have a superpower, Right? So the ants are called small or, or not powerful. What's it say? Yeah, the ants are not a strong people, right? Which you know, we live in Florida and you step on an ant and it's dead. So it's whole life's over, okay? They're not a strong people. And yet they have a superpower. What is it? They think ahead. They store up for future seasons. And the hyrax, which is another word for a rock badger, okay? Which that may not be helpful to you. What's a rock badger? I Googled it. It looks like a mouse. And apparently they live in rocks and caves and stuff like that. And it seems to be saying, hey, the, the, the rock badger is not a mighty animal either, but it has the superpower to be able to go into rocks and live in caves and, I guess, stay away from predators. The locust has no um, organization. They have no government. They have no king, it says, yet they march in ranks. Right? There are no politicians. There's no legislation for the locusts to organize. And yet when they go and destroy a farm, it seems like they're all doing fine when it comes to teamwork. Right? And then the lizard can be caught in your hands. We know that because we live in Florida. They're everywhere around here, right? So a lizard can be caught in your hands. It's not a mighty creature. Not, no one looks, oh, that is very impressive. I'm very scared of this thing I'm holding in my hand. And yet the lizard can make its way into the king's throne room, a place that most of the humans in the kingdom can't even get into. And I think the point of this passage is as he is um, as he's observing all these different things in the animal world, he's saying, that's the way life is. It's not about how powerful you are. It's not about how big you are. It's not about how strong you are. It's about how wise you are. It's about how skilled you are. Living is not just, like the way to live this life is not simply how strong and how powerful you are and become the biggest one, become the, the strongest one. No, it's become the wisest one, the skilled one. So we see these kinds of observations in the second half of the chapter. But what I'm going to do now is I want to spend the rest of the sermon on verses 1 through 14. And verses 1 through 14, which I think is a different section, in fact, I have um, an outline for you. I'm going to put all of the teaching in this chapter into five headings. So these are the five headings that we're going to learn this morning, okay? Number one, I'm going to read them to you. Number one, a quick explanation of the numerical Proverbs. <laughs> Check! We've already done that one, all right? We're done. So now we've already, we're already to point two. Isn't this wonderful? All right, number two, does this guy know God or not? Number three, a prayer for honesty and contentment. Number four, a proverb about slander. And number five, four generations of sinners. And as you look at this, you might go, wow, that kind of seems all over the place. <laughs> I know, that's what I told you. It is kind of all over the place. But these are the headings we're going to put it under. So we've done a quick explanation of the numerical proverbs. Let's move to point number two. Does this guy know God or not? And for that, we go back to verses one and two. 
So in Proverbs chapter 30, um, <laughs> first of all, who is this guy? The words of Agar. Anybody know who Agar is? It's, it's, it's hard to know who Agar is because when we look at um, the other Proverbs, you may know this, especially if you've been with us, the Proverbs are credited to Solomon, and we know who Solomon is. We know that Solomon is the son of David. We know that Solomon was the king of Israel during Israel's like, you know, biggest, most successful time. We know that Solomon got wisdom from God. There are, Solomon is in other books of the Bible other than Proverbs, and so we know of him as a Bible character, and then we come to Proverbs and we go, oh, okay, these are Solomon's Proverbs. But who's Agar? Because here we are reading the words of Agar. Who is he? You want to know what the answer is? We have no clue. We don't know who Agar is. He is not a Bible character. He's not like Solomon. I mean, he is a Bible character, but this is it. This is what Agar did. What, Bible, what did Agar do in the Bible? Proverbs 30. That's it. That's all we know about him. He's nowhere else. So the only thing that we can learn about this guy is what he has revealed about himself in this chapter. So let's look at it. Verse 2. I am more stupid than any other man. So that, that's how he begins. Oh, that's good. That's great. Hmm. Um, why are we even reading his words? Right? I mean, the words of Agar, and he starts off with, I'm stupid. Well, why, why are we spending time? I, there are people that aren't stupid. Right? Maybe I should go listen to them. Why in the world am I going to listen? Why am I going to read a chapter that's written not just by someone that I think stupid, but they know that they're stupid? Why would I do this? I'm stupid more than any other man? Let's keep going. And I lack man's ability to understand. Okay, great. So, so he doesn't even have the ability to understand. What am I going to get out of this? Man, I hope there's some kind of wisdom in here. Let's check. Next verse, verse 3. I have not gained wisdom. What? Wait a minute. The reason we opened the book of Proverbs was for wisdom, right? The name of the series is Way of Wisdom. The chapter one of this book was like, read this if you want wisdom. And now we get to Proverbs chapter 30 and the guy says, I don't have any wisdom. Well, then why are we reading this? So, okay. Agar, you have no wisdom. Somehow you got a chapter in Proverbs, the wisdom book. Don't know how that happened. So he's dumb, obviously, but maybe he at least knows God, and he can share, us, share with us what he's learned about God. Let's look. And I have no knowledge of the Holy One. What? Wait, wait, wait. So you're stupid, and you don't have any ability to understand, and you've not gained wisdom, and you don't know anything about God? Agar, hello, we're Christians. The reason we open this book is because we want to know about God. We want to gain knowledge from the Holy One, and you wrote this, and you said you have no knowledge. How am I going to learn about God from someone who says they have no knowledge of Him? <laughs> he is like a lot of us. Verse 4, who has gone up to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his hands? <clears throat> who has bound up the waters in a cloak? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is the name of his son, if you know? Now, these questions, there's two ways that you could take it. One is that he's talking about God here, so that he's saying, who has established all the ends of the earth? That's God, right? What is his name and what is the name of his son? So he's saying... Like, there's some higher power that has established the earth, and I don't know who it is. I don't know his name. That's one way to take it. Or the other way to take it is that these are rhetorical questions about a human being. That he's saying, what person is there? What human somewhere in this world has gone up to heaven and come down? Has bound up the waters in a cloak? Has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? In other words, it's a rhetorical question. The answer is, oh, his name, well, there's, there's, he doesn't have a name. There is no person that knows this. There is no person that's gone up to heaven and come down. There is no person that's established all the ends of the earth. So that's what, so he's either saying that he's either talking about God and saying, I don't know God. I don't even know his name. Or he's saying no human knows this stuff. 
Either way, however you interpret it, we got a lot of ignorance in the first four verses. And then a big change in verse 5. Verse 5 begins this way. Every word of God is pure. Wait a minute, uh, Agar, I thought you said you didn't know anything about God. I could have swore you just said you have no knowledge of the Holy One, but all of a sudden now you know that He has a word, and it's pure. Was there a class between verse 4 and verse 5 that I missed? How in the world do you suddenly know that there is a God who has a word and it's pure? And then he goes on, he says he is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Wait, so... So he's a refuge to people. I thought you didn't know at all. Verse 6, don't add to his words or he will rebuke you and you will be proved a liar. So you know that about him. I thought you had no knowledge of the Holy One. Then you get to verse 7. In verse 7, he prays a prayer to the God that he doesn't know. Two things I ask of you. Don't deny them to me before I die. And here's the prayer. Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you saying, why don't you just say this with me? Let's be aggro. Okay, I might have too much and deny you saying, who is the Lord? I want you to pay attention to that. That's huge. Who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. Now, the reason I want to point this out is because now we have someone who says they have no knowledge of God, who's now praying to this God that they do not know, and their concern is that they might have so much that they would forget about God. But how can you forget about the God that you never knew? And not only is he concerned that maybe I will forget God or deny God, look what he says. He says, I don't want to get to the point that I say, who is the Lord? And this phrase right here, this word right here, the Lord, this, I think this is so important, and this is something I've said multiple times in this series but I just think there have been multiple occasions where it's important for you to know it, so I just keep saying it. The word Lord here is not the generic name for God. It's the personal name of God. It's Yahweh. Like in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. He's saying, I don't want to get to the point that I go, who's Yahweh? And that's not a generic word for God. That's a specific God that he knows by name. There are generic words for God. It's actually in the same verse. See, he says, and I might have nothing to steal profaning the name of my God. The word God there is the more generic name. Like the difference between God and Lord Okay, in this verse, I think is roughly the, dis- the difference between like pastor and Mario. Okay, he's talking about God here, but he's talking about him by name here. Who is Yahweh? You go, why is that important? Because I'm trying to point something out to you. He's praying to this God by name, but earlier, remember one of the interpretations was he was saying, I don't even know his name. What's his name? And then he prays to him by name. So back to our question, does this guy know God or not? I think the answer is yes. Agar knows God. Agar prays to God. Agar knows about God. Agar is worshiping God by name. So does this guy know God or not? Yes, I think the answer is yes. Well, if that's true, then why are verses 1 through 4 written the way that they are? And I guess my official answer to that is I don't know. But it seems to me that verses 1 through 4 are written in a different voice than the verses that come after them. Verses 4 seem to be written in a different voice than verses 5 through 9, almost like um, someone that writes a script and they have two different characters talking, right? And it seems like the ignorant person speaks first and then the person who knows God and prays to God speaks second, right? I don't know anything about God. Every word of God is pure. It seems to me that there are two voices being spoken here and so it seems that Agur, for whatever reason, wrote from that perspective, from the ignorant perspective and then from the I know God and I pray to him perspective. But I think Agar knows God because God has revealed himself to him. And as I was studying for this, I thought about this quote that I had heard. 
I had heard that somewhere in the writings of C.S. Lewis he had said something like this, and so I looked it up, and I'm going to read the quote to you. In, in one of his writings, C.S. Lewis said, If Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. If Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. Um, if you're not familiar with Shakespearean literature, let me explain a little bit so that that will make sense to you. Shakespeare is an author. He wrote a lot of plays and sonnets. Um, and one of the like most like the biggest most popular things that he wrote is a play called Hamlet. Hamlet is the name of the play, and Hamlet is also the name of the main character in the play. So Hamlet is a character in the play that's called Hamlet. And maybe one of the most fair, famous characters that Shakespeare ever made up. And and he said probably one of the most famous things that Shakespeare ever wrote. Right, the the guy who said to be or not to be that is the question. That's Hamlet. Okay, Hamlet said that, but Shakespeare wrote for Hamlet to say that, right? Because Shakespeare's the author, and Hamlet is the fictional character in the world that Shakespeare created. C.S. Lewis is saying, if Shakespeare and Hamlet could ever meet, it must be Shakespeare's doing. <clears throat> How in the world could Hamlet jump out of the play and get to know his creator? How could he meet his maker in, in that sort of sense? How would he ever know Shakespeare because Shakespeare created him, and he lives in the world that Shakespeare made for him. Um, and so I think that, first of all, I think that as C.S. Lewis is saying this, I'm kind of using the quote a little bit different than he meant it, because when he quotes this, I think he quotes it talking about what he, what he believed back before he was a Christian. That he was, he, in, his, in his autobiography, he talks about how he came to know God, and I think there was a point where he came to the conclusion, well, even if there is a God out there, I can't do anything to find him. I can't do anything to know him just like Hamlet couldn't possibly initiate meeting Shakespeare. But the truth is, I think that C.S. Lewis was right, even in his thinking before he was a Christian. Like, there's a, there's a huge sense in which that is true. Like, th that's the way it is for us. That, that we live in this world, and it's like, well, how in the world would we ever be able to, of our own, just kind of jump out of this world and just get to know God? He would have to bridge the gap. He would have to come to us, just like if Shakespeare and Hamlet were to meet. I mean, it seems like to me, Shakespeare would almost have to write himself into the play and introduce himself. And the good news is, God has done that for us. God has revealed himself to us. He has revealed himself in his word, the Bible. He has revealed himself to us in his word, Jesus Christ. The word become flesh, God coming down here and living among us and revealing God to us. And so without God doing that, we would be like the guy in verses 1 through 4. I have no knowledge of the Holy One. How could I? Who has gone up to heaven and come down? How could I know Him? But we can know Him because He's revealed Himself to us, and every word of God is pure. All right, point number three. A prayer for honesty and contentment. We'll go back to verses 8 and 9 and actually pay attention to what they're about now. I wanted to focus on the who is the Lord part, but now let's look at what he's praying about. Verse 8, he says, Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. So he wants to, he's praying this prayer against dishonesty. If you want to know more about that, our associate pastor, uh, Doug Davison, preached on honesty and dishonesty. I think it was four weeks ago. It's still on our website. But the second thing that he asks for in this prayer, he says, Keep falsehood and deceitful words far from me. And he says, Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Have you ever prayed like this? Have you ever prayed, God, give me neither poverty nor wealth? 
Okay, I'm assuming in this room there are probably some of you who have prayed, God, please don't give me poverty. I'm guessing that that's a prayer some of us have prayed, right? Please provide for me. Please don't give me poverty. Has anybody in this room prayed, God, please give me no wealth? Please don't make me rich. Don't do that. Anybody prayed that? Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. Well, why does he pray that? He explains it in verse 9. Otherwise, I might have too much. That's his concern. I could have too much, and what might happen? I might deny you, saying, who is the Lord? My concern is, what if there comes a point that I got so much stuff that I forget about you, God? I'm like, oh, God, it doesn't matter. Who's God? I don't need God. I got a lot of stuff. Let's pray that God will provide for me. I don't need to pray that God will provide for me. I'm good. I got plenty. And so his concern is, no, what if I had too much and I deny you, saying, who is the Lord? And then his other concern related to the poverty is, or I might have nothing and steal, profaning the name of my God. I don't want to do that either. So I asked God that you would provide me something so I wouldn't steal. So this is a prayer about contentment. God, help me to be content with what you've given me, that I would have just the right amount. One thing that's assumed in this prayer, and I don't know if we think about this very often, Agur assumed, assuming he's wrote this part of this prayer, Agur assumed that God could withhold something from him, in this case wealth, and withhold it from him in order to bless him. Have you ever thought like that? Agar assumed that God could withhold something from him in order to bless him. Have you ever thought in your life that God could withhold something from you that you like? Not because he's mad at you. Not because he's trying to punish you. But because he's actually trying to bless you. Because he loves you. And it would be best for you to not have that. Have you ever thought like that before? That God could withhold something from you for your good? Because I think that's wisdom. And then another assumption that Agur makes here is that God is more important than possessions. I mean, he doesn't say the words, God is more important than possessions in this prayer, but you can tell he assumes that. That's just implied. When he says, otherwise I might have too much and deny you saying, who is the Lord? He's saying, okay, I could have a bunch over here, and then I've got over here the Lord, right? So I could, I could have a little and I know the Lord, or I could have a whole lot, and I'm denying God. And so which one is he saying is more important? Obviously, he's saying, I don't want to have so much that I say, who is the Lord? Knowing you, Yahweh, knowing you as my God is more important than all the stuff. So if, this, if I'm going to get the stuff at the cost of you, I don't want the stuff. God is more important than all of our possessions. That's just, that's just assumed in this prayer. I think this is an important way to think. This is wisdom. All right, number four in our going through our outline, fourth heading, a proverb about slander. And that's the very next verse, verse 10. It says, don't slander a servant to his master or he will curse you and you'll become guilty. I call this a proverb because it's one sentence and it seems to be a proverb like the proverbs that are in chapters 10 through 29. It seems to be on one topic. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with the verses that come before it or after it. So we have a proverb on slander. Don't slander a servant to his master. If we were going to update it, we might say, you know, don't badmouth an employee to his employer, right? Don't, don't badmouth someone to their, to their boss. So what is this saying? It's saying he will curse you, right? You'll make an enemy out of him and you will become guilty. Well, what's the problem here? 
Obviously, he's telling us to be careful about slander. He's telling us to be careful about bad-mouthing someone. I don't know exactly what it means. This might be a, one of those more situational proverbs. I, I don't assume that this means that never, ever are you allowed to complain to a store manager about something one of the employees did. But there is something here that he's concerned about related to servant and master and the way you talk. It might be that slander is like the, that what's being assumed here is some kind of deceit, that it's not just that you're reporting a bad thing, but that you are telling a lie about the servant, or maybe telling uh, the truth, but you're sort of like spinning it in a way that you're getting the servant in trouble unnecessarily. It could be that it's talking about not taking advantage of his lowly position as a servant. Maybe the assumption, like the assumed uh, person that this proverb is being written to is someone that's maybe on the same, around the same level as the master. So there you are, and then you're talking to a master, and then there's a servant, and if you badmouth the servant, if you say things about him that's going to get in tr trouble with his master, the master might believe you over the servant because the servant is a lowly servant and you're not. And so that might be what this is. Hey, be careful who you badmouth. Don't, don't just take advantage of a situation where you could get this person in trouble because they're lower than you on the totem pole. But whatever is he saying, he's saying be careful. With the situation of servant master, be careful about how you badmouth people. And then the fifth point in our outline is called Four Generations of Sinners. Four Generations of Sinners. And then I'm going to go ahead and read through. I don't know if, if you're in the back. This font might be too tiny for you to see, but there's four generations here, and I'm just, I'll say them out loud as I read through it. Proverbs chapter 30, starting in verse 11, it says, There is a generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. That's one, and that's dishonoring parents. Then the next verse, There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filth. That's Number two, that's self-righteous. Number three, there is a generation how haughty its eyes and pretentious its looks. That's arrogance. And then the fourth one, verse 14, there is a generation whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives, devouring the oppressed from the land and the needy from among mankind. And so we have the fourth one in the list there, oppressing the poor. So we look at this list, and it's interesting. This is another one of those things that maybe you can take more than one way. I don't know if this is talking about one generation or four. Like one way is that this could be talking about one single generation, right? And he's saying there's a generation that curses its father. There's a generation that's pure in its own eyes. There's a generation how haughty its eyes. In other words, there is this generation that dishonors its parents and is arrogant and is self-righteous and doesn't care about the poor. Or maybe the reason why the word generation is used over and over again is it's four different types of people. There is a type of person that dishonors their parents, and there's a whole other type of person that's self-righteous, and there's a whole other type of person that um, is arrogant, and then there's a whole other type of person that oppresses the poor. I don't know which one it is, but for the purposes of this sermon, I don't think it matters. Either way, we can see this is a list of four sins. This is a list of four types of people or four types of living that we don't want to do. And as we think about them more, I'm going to go ahead and just point out the three that we've already covered. Um, one of the generations is the generation that curses its father and does not bless its mother. So this idea of dishonoring parents, if you want to know more about that, I'll just let you know. We have already covered this idea of dishonoring and honoring your parents earlier in the Way of Wisdom series. You can go on our website and look. Earlier in the book of Proverbs, we already looked at what the Bible says about the way you are to treat your parents in a sermon that was called Family Relationships. We did it earlier this summer. And if you go to generation number three, how haughty its eyes and pretentious its looks. We actually have already covered that earlier in the book of Proverbs. Earlier in the Way of Wisdom series, we already did a sermon um, called Pride. And in that sermon, we looked at what Proverbs says about pride. And if you look at this uh, fourth one, the people who are devouring the oppressed from the land and the needy from among the, ma the mankind, we've already done one and a half sermons 
that addressed that, like how it is that you're to treat the poor and not oppressing the poor. Uh, earlier in this series, we did a sermon called God Rewards, which talks about what, like what the book of Proverbs says about how to treat people who are poor and oppressed. And we also did a sermon a little bit later than that called Rich and Poor, and half of that sermon, a part of that sermon was about not oppressing the poor and about the fatherless and the widow, and so we've talked about that as well. So what I'm going to do as I close out this sermon is just focus on the one of these that we haven't covered yet, and that's number two, self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. Verse 12 says this, there is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet not washed from its filth. There is a group of people, there is a type of person, there is a way to sin in such a way that you are, and this is what it says, they are, they are pure, right? There's a generation that is pure, but this is important to get, in its own eyes. They evaluate themselves to be pure. Now, are they actually pure? No, they are not washed from their filth. There is a type of person that looks into the mirror, and when it comes to morality... When it comes to spirituality, they are muddy. And they look into the mirror and they go, <laughs> yeah, that is what I call clean. That's a, that's a type of person. That's a type of sinner. And it, it's a big problem. It is a very dangerous sin. I believe the sin of self-righteousness, the sin of I'm not a bad person. I'm a pretty good person, right? I mean, I'm not perfect. I've made mistakes. I'm not saying I'm like the best person in the whole world, but I'm just saying I, I, I'm good. I'm a good person. I try hard, and, I, and I'm, I, I am pure in my own eyes. And when God looks at our filth, and then we're pure in our own eyes, that's such a damaging, dangerous sin because it can stop that person from ever needing Jesus. And I put needing in quotes because everybody needs Jesus, but it can, stop, it can cause that person to not think they need Jesus, to not pursue being washed because they're filthy and every time they look in the mirror, they go, look at him, look at her, pure. And they're not going to seek out the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. That's, that's such a big problem with self-righteousness. And that makes it, I think, probably different than other sins because there are some sins that you, you do them and you're ashamed. There are certain sins that seems to me they're much harder to look in the mirror and go, now that's what I call clean. Sexual sins, I think, are pretty good at that. When it comes to like producing guilt and shame, sexual sins are fantastic for that. Okay. When people commit adultery, when people commit homosexual acts, when people commit fornication, when people even do things that like our culture considers really, really bad, like pedophilia, they do things, and then a lot of times they go, "I feel like a terrible person." And it seems to me the upside to that is that they can call out to God and say, would you have mercy on me and forgive me? But if you're someone who keeps looking in the mirror and going, what I see is pure, how are you ever going to turn to God? And so I'm going to end by reading to you from Luke chapter 18. I want to read you something from the New Testament. In fact, this is a story that Jesus told. And Jesus said this. Well, the narrator speaks first, Luke 18, verse 9. He told this parable, that he is Jesus, so he's telling a story. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Here's the story. Two men went up to the temple complex to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Now that's where the story ends. But I want you to, now I want to read to you what Jesus said about that story. This is the next sentence. He says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified. That word justified throughout the Bible often means declared righteous. So he's saying one of these characters, <laughs> I think this is what he's saying, one of these characters in this story that I just told you is declared righteous. He went home and God saw him to be righteous. Which one is it? It says, one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Oh, it's the tax collector. So you got two guys, one guy who says, I am righteous, and one guy who says, I am unrighteous. And at the end of the day, by the time they go home, God has declared that the one who said he was righteous is, is not. And the one who said he was unrighteous is how does that even work? Why is that true? And I think the answer is because of the gospel. Because the gospel is true, that's why the story ends the way it does. That when we are someone who is self-righteous, we have no need of God. We don't turn to God. Why do we, what, would, what would we need that for? What would we need, we need Him for? I, I don't need to be washed. I'm pure. And the people who say, have mercy on me, I need to be washed. Those are the people that are going to get washed, people who call out to God for mercy. And the reason that that happens is because Jesus provided for that to happen. Like we are all sin. The gospel assumes we are all sinners. We are all filthy. We all need to be washed. And so Jesus came and he lived the life that human beings ought to live. Like he led, lived a life like for humanity, on behalf of humanity, offering to God as a human, on behalf of all the other humans. I give you my life, my perfect life. They don't have perfect lives. I do. And I know that's what's required, so I do that for them so, that that, so my life would be credited to them. And then Jesus died on the cross. Not a death that he deserved, a death that sinners deserve. And again, a sacrifice to God. They deserve to die. I'll take it in their place. I'll do this as, as their substitute so that they can be forgiven of their sins so that they can be washed. So that's the gospel, trusting in Christ's life and his death and his resurrection rather than your own ability to be righteous. Mm -hmm. So let me go ahead and conclude, just kind of summarizing. Here's our chapter, Proverbs chapter 30, the words of Agur. Does this guy know God? I think he does. And then he prays a prayer. We see contentment involves not wanting more than would be good for you. We need to be careful about slander. We need to watch out for self-righteousness and other sins. And then there are numerical proverbs that are observing things in this world about God that can teach us wisdom. Proverbs chapter 30. Let's pray. God, I pray right now for, I guess, maybe three different types of people. I pray for the person who does not yet know you, and that you would introduce yourself to them, that, that you have already really written yourself into the story. You've already bridged the gap. You've already come our way. But I just I pray that if there's anybody here that does not know you, that they would come to know you by the power of your spirit, like applying what has already taken place by your word being written and by Jesus coming here.
and I pray for us uh, dealing with money, especially Americans. We have um, way more of it than we realize. And so I do pray if there's anyone in here that is in poverty that you would provide for them and that they would not steal. And I pray for anybody in here who has extra, that it would not be too much. I pray you'd help us to view you as good and that when you withhold something from us that we don't assume that it's because you're trying to hurt us. Especially at least those of us who know you. And I pray for those of us who have self-righteousness within us that you would open our eyes, help us to see ourselves as we really are, and make us more like that tax collector. And please forgive us. And you maybe if there are even some of us who've already been forgiven and yet we've kind of drifted back into the Pharisee way, I pray you'd help us to repent of that. We thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.